If you're new with us, you're joining us on the final leg of a three-week series on the role and qualifications of elders in the life of the local church uh, as we prepare to nominate elders here in the life of this body um, or uh, go through that round of nominations once again. We've got two who are currently serving. Um, Their terms will be up in January to be renewed, but we want to bring some new folks into um, into that role alongside of us as well. And so we've been working through the qualifications of elders. And so far, what we've said about elders is this, is that elders or pastors or overseers in the life of the church are spiritually qualified men who are called by God and affirmed by the church and responsible to lead, feed, and protect the church of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we've been kind of unpacking over the course of the last two weeks and then again this week. We're going to be in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 if you've got a Bible and want to turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it together. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gives the qualifications beginning in verse 1 where he writes, This saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And then in Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, just a few pages over in the New Testament, Paul writing to Titus on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea, and he says this, This is why, beginning in verse 5, I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, not a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So as we look at the role of elders and their qualifications this morning, last week we spent much time in 1 Timothy 3 looking at the character qualities, the virtues that are born of the Holy Spirit in the life of a man who would lead in God's church to, and feed and protect. Right? We, we saw that. And, and, and in fact, what we saw is that many of those virtues or those character qualities that would qualify someone for the office of elder are things that ought to be present in every Christian. Uh, They're not exclusive to the office of elder, but elders ought to be setting the pace in the church in those areas and exhibiting those virtues. But what you see when you read the qualifications of elders in the New Testament is that so many of them focus on character qualities, not necessarily competencies. But there are two that we did not talk about last week that we're going to drill down on this week that are competencies that must be present in the life of an elder to serve in that office. And they come from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and then supported from Titus chapter 1. 
And so as we take a look at those competencies that must be present, uh, we're, we're going to unfold those together and then look a little later at what, what Paul says with regards to the kind of men, their reputation outside in the city, their tenure as a believer, as a believer and those types of issues as well. But let's start off with the first competency that Paul mentions in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 2, Paul says that an elder must be able to teach. That he must be able to teach. Now, there's a lot of, of perhaps qualified men in the life of the church who God has been producing character in them, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And so they are hospitable. They are not lovers of money. They are not greedy for gain. They are not, they're disciplined. They're holy. They're reverent. They bear the marks of the virtues of the qualifications of elder, but they get so intimidated by the qualification of must be able to teach. And here's why I think that's the case. is because many of us think, I must be able to teach. And what we do, listen, I know, I do this all the time, is we compare ourselves to our favorite podcast preacher who has a following of 7,000 listeners on his podcast. And we think, that's what it is to teach. And if I can't do that, then I must not be qualified to serve as an elder. But I want you to know something, that, that there are a variety of venues in which teaching is expressed and a variety of ways in which teaching may take place. Let me give you a few examples. Right? You can teach somebody one-on-one seated across a table in a kitchen or in a coffee shop as you reason from the Scriptures, give counsel and direction as you explain what the Bible has to say. You can teach in a small group setting. As you facilitate discussion, as you draw out conversation, as you think about how the Bible applies to life, that can be a venue in which you could teach. You can teach in a classroom setting by lecturing on a particular topic with which you have expertise or experience on a passage of Scripture that you've studied for many years. And it's not necessarily a sermon, it's more of a lecture in a classroom. You can teach and preach from the pulpit in order to do what the Puritans said was to give light and heat. In other words, both to inform and inspire, to persuade and to instruct, to explain and to give, bring conviction in the lives of the hearers. So you might preach from the pulpit, you might teach in a classroom, you might facilitate a small group, you might sit across a coffee table and explain what the Bible has to say about something somebody's struggling with. And all of that is teaching. You with me? There's a variety of venues in which teaching can take place. But there's also different styles of teaching. Different styles of teaching. Some have a more academic or professorial type style. Right? And you're just amazed by their limitless, seemingly limitless knowledge bank that they have. Okay? They've forgotten more than you remember you ever learned. Okay? There's those types of folks. There are some who are more passionate and more prophetic in their style of which they preach and teach. Some are more explanatory, some are more declarative. Some tell a bunch of stories and rely on emotion to persuade. Others would use logic and argumentation to lead people to action. Some have a very direct style and they put forth statements. Some have a more indirect style and they ask lots of questions to promote conversation and more of a dialogue rather than a monologue. There's all kinds of styles, just like there's different types of venues. And yet in the Bible, listen church, in the Bible, what is held up as more important than style or venue is substance. It is substance. 
Listen, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul was one of the first ones to say, Listen, I... If you want to compare me to the great orators in the ancient world, Paul says, I pale in comparison to their kind of golden and silver tongues, the way in which they're able to craft words, turns of phrase. But Paul says that's not the point. Paul says the reason that my ministry has been so effective is not because I'm a great orator, but because God's the message of the gospel is power. There's power in the cross and the preaching of the cross. In the holding high of Jesus. So what's more important for an elder, rather than being a great orator or a really skilled facilitator or lecturer, somebody who's academic or passionate, direct or indirect, somebody who is, appeals to emotion or logic, what's more important than all of that is that they're biblically responsible and biblically faithful. So in other words, when they open this book and they say what it says... Right? They say what it says. Listen, I've, I've known men who can get on stage and they can command an audience with charisma. They just have a natural charisma about them. Right? They have clever alliterations. Where all the points start with the same letter. Somebody taught them to do that in seminary. They have compelling stories. Right? Or seemingly limitless knowledge. They can sell ice to an Eskimo or sand to an Arab because people are just drawn to them. Because of their charisma. And yet the mark of an elder in Jesus' church is not does he have a command of the audience, but does he have a command of the Scriptures? Does he have a command of what the Scriptures say? So he doesn't just get up and, and tell seven stories and then sprinkle in a few Bible verses each Sunday to make you feel good about there's a moral to the story and you can leave and go about your business and make you feel good about showing up. See, an elder has the responsibility of nurturing, feeding, caring for God's church. And whether that's from this pulpit, or whether that's in a home, in a small group, or whether that's sitting across a table from someone, counseling, guiding, giving direction, they have a responsibility to nurture with the whole counsel of God. The full counsel of the Scriptures. Even as Paul said in Acts chapter 20, when he gathered the Ephesian elders together before he went to Jerusalem, saying, listen, I don't know what's going to happen to me there, but I know I'm constrained by the Holy Spirit to go. And he told the Ephesian elders before he left, he says, I want you to know that I did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God to you. Because all that God has revealed has something to say to us as His people. From Genesis to Revelation. We believe that. So we want to teach that. Right? Because listen, in, in our day and time, some teaching is, and I want to be careful here, okay? but some teaching is kind of like Febreze. You know what Febreze is? It's that stuff you spray on your couch whenever, before you have company that comes over so that your couch doesn't smell like the dog after its bath, but it smells more like a fresh linen hanging out on a clothesline on a spring morning. Everything is bright and fresh, right? It's light and airy. But listen, other and listen, that's what a lot of folks are looking for whenever they show up in a gathered assembly on Sunday morning. They're looking for a Sunday morning sitcom. Like an episode of their favorite show that's 22 minutes, okay? With a few well-placed jokes that are executed with impeccable comedic timing. Alright, so that they can laugh and there's a moral that ties it all together. But listen, the kind of teaching that the church needs is, is oftentimes less like Febreze and more like smelling salts. 
Right? So whenever a boxer gets knocked out in the ring, they wave that stuff under his nose. And all of a sudden, he's, he's, he's awakened out of his stupor. Listen, we live in a day and age and a time and a world in which we're inundated with all kinds of messages coming from all kinds of places. And there is at least once a week when we show up in a gathered assembly or when we sit in a home and we open the scriptures and pray for each other and we talk about the Bible, we need some smelling salts to awaken us out of our stupor and our infatuation with worldliness. We need that. It's necessary in our lives. Richard Baxter is a Puritan pastor um, in the 1600s in England. He's an incredible, incredible uh, life and witness in his writings. He said this about preaching. He says, of all the preaching in the world that speaks not stark lies. In other words, of all the preaching in the world that's not heresy, he says, the type of preaching that I hate the most is the one which tends to make its hearers laugh or to move their minds with tickling levity and affect them as the stage plays used to do, instead of affecting them with a holy reverence of the name of God. Now listen, I don't think it's sinful to make people laugh on Sunday morning. I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. But listen, if that's all that you walk away with on a Sunday morning is a good chuckle in your belly, like some endorphins released in your body because you laughed, and listen, you've missed the point. And we, we have not lifted your eyes off of yourself and off of this world to cultivate a holy reverence for God and His name and His fame and His glory in your life. Then our elders are not doing their job. Not doing their job. I became acutely aware of this at one point in the church's history. We had two families. That, by the way, these two families are no longer here. Um, they've since moved on. But I had two families um, critique my preaching at one point in the church's history. One did it to my face, the other did it behind my back. That's always real fun. Um, but one of them uh, ended up, they ended up leaving the church because they felt like the church would never really go grow very big because I wasn't mainstream enough. That was kind of their term. I wasn't mainstream enough. So it wasn't Fabrizi enough, okay? So the church wasn't really going to grow. The other one ended up leaving the church because they thought I was too mainstream, Right? That I was too light and airy, which taught me this. Must be doing something right if I'm getting critiques from both sides that are firing at me um, as I try to walk this line in between of engaging people where they are and lifting them and their eyes to see God in His holiness and reverence and beauty. Right? And so what that taught me, that one of the lessons that taught me through that process is this, is that I'm here, to, and our elders are here, to serve you, to nurture you, to feed you, and we're accountable to you, yes, but before we're accountable to you, and we're accountable to God with regards to who, what we teach, the substance of what comes from this pulpit and out of this church. So an elder must be able to teach. But Why? Paul tells us why. Listen to what he says. In, in Titus 1.9, Paul tells Titus that he's left him there on the island of Crete so he could put everything in order. In verse 5, and appoint elders in every town and that elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Essentially, Paul says this to Titus, that an elder must be able to teach because an elder is responsible to both cultivate and correct. And he does that through teaching. Teaching cultivates the church. It grows the church. Instruction in sound doctrine. But then also it corrects false understandings, distortions, manipulations of the truth. That an elder must be able to do both of those things. And Paul says if he's going to cultivate and correct, 
then he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And in other words, in other words, true and faithful shepherds don't have a license to make stuff up. Okay, elders don't have a license to create truth. They have a they, they're licensed to dispense it from what they have received. In fact, in, in Paul's day, what, what Paul would have been talking about to Titus, who's there on Crete, Paul as an apostle, as a part of the apostolic witness to the person of Jesus Christ, he would have been downloading what had been revealed to him by God. The other apostles would have been downloading what had been revealed to them about God through Jesus to the people who came after them. There would have been this apostolic seed. Okay? We're not Roman Catholics, but there is an apostolic succession. It's not of a pope or a leader, but it's of truth, a body of truth that gets passed down from generation to generation. Okay? And so what would have been passed down from, the, from Jesus to the apostles, the apostles of the next generation, from that generation to the following generation, and on and on and on and on. It had been this trustworthy word that had come to them, that had been taught to them, that they had been discipled in, that had been planted within their lives and they were responsible for passing that on you see faithful elders are not like cardinals that have a beautiful song to sing they're like mockingbirds who have no song of their own they just repeat whatever they've heard right that's what a mockingbird does it has no distinct voice of its own it's just mimicking the voices of the other birds and the same is true of an elder he's preaching teaching sharing what has been received from those who have gone before, who have held to the trustworthy word. Now, what is the trustworthy word? It's at least this. It's at least the gospel message. That a good God created a good world. And He created good human beings in His image. And those human beings, male and female, distinct gender, right? He created them in His image, and His likeness, and yet they in their determination to be God for themselves crossed the boundaries that he'd established right? because they wanted to be wise in their own eyes and so they take the fruit that he had put out of bounds and in so doing they sinned against God they betrayed the relationship with God they said God father we will not trust you we will trust ourselves to make our own decisions and so they brought sin into the world. And since then, sin has been, all of our natures have been bent by it as we've been born of Adam and of his seed. And yet God was not content to leave us in our fallenness and our depravity. Yet but before the foundations of the world, he made a plan to redeem for himself his own by the sending of his son who would come and who would, t- who would show us who God is through His life. He would live in our place the life of perfect obedience to the Father that we could not live. That He would go to the cross in our place and for our sins, dying the death that we deserve to die. And that God would, by the power of His Holy Spirit, raise Him from the grave. Give Him life again from the dead. And that He would appear to many, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, as many as 500 people at one time, and show Himself that He would commission His apostles to take that good news of His life and death and resurrection to the ends of the earth before He ascended into heaven, whereby now He is seated at the right hand of God, awaiting the Father to say, it's go time, in which time He will return and He will claim for Himself all of His own. He will judge the living and the dead and there will be some that will spend eternity with Him forever in a real place called heaven and some that will be separated from Him forever in a real place called hell. It's at least that. 
Okay? It's at least what would be affirmed through the Apostles' Creed, which the Apostles didn't write, by the way, but it was their teaching that had been transmitted through the generations. That later church leaders condensed and wrote. And he must hold to that as it's been transmitted from generation to generation so that he's able to cultivate a church. Right? He's able to help nourish. He gets his, his hands in the, in, the, in the roots of people's lives, the soil of people's lives to instruct them in sound doctrine, to raise up a church that is able to confess truths about who God is and who has revealed himself to be in the scriptures and through the person of his son. And listen, an elder needs to be able to, uh, needs to hold to the trustworthy word. And listen, not just hold to it, but I think deepen himself and his own understanding of it. And here's why, because you know this to be true in every arena of life that you cannot lead someone past the point that you have journeyed yourself. And if an elder is charged with the responsibility of taking people deeper in their understanding of who God is, who He's revealed Himself to be through His Son and in His Word, then an elder cannot be content just to have read a primer on theological subjects, right? but an elder, at times, needs to open up a book that has footnotes. <laughs> right? That has, and read deeply, understanding sound doctrine. So that he can cultivate, build that into the lives of the people that God has given him oversight of. But then second of all, so that he can correct false teaching. Because listen, in Paul's day, it was rampant in the ancient world. As they were trying to, try, they, they, were, they were clarifying, they were clarifying for the, the church who God was, who he revealed himself to be in his son. In our day, listen, false teaching is no less rampant. And there's a need for clear, clear, compelling understandings of sound doctrine in the life of the church upon which the church is built. And to be able to correct those who have departed from it. So when somebody shows up in the community, like a, another church in our area, and begins to say things like this, we believe it is God's will, that, or we believe prosperity is the will of God for every believer, and always to be associated with God's purpose for our lives, the elder can say, right? While in the future kingdom, yes, everything will, all the promises of God will be fulfilled one day fully and finally. But in this life, there is suffering, there is hardship, there is toil as we are aliens and strangers, as Peter says in his little epistle. That's who we are as Christians. So there's going to be hardship, there's going to be sickness, there's going to be disease, there's going to be poverty, there's going to be all these things. There's going to be financial strain and stress. It is not God's will for every believer in every place to be prosperous and healthy. That is heresy. And an elder needs to be able to recognize that, correct it, and confront it. A guy by the name of John Calvin said this. He said, the pastor ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep, another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. For he who is deeply skilled in it will be able to both govern those who are teachable and refute the enemies of the truth. There are two voices. One for cultivating. 
the other for correcting and rebuking and driving away wolves. So listen, as we move toward the nomination of those who would serve in the office of elder in this church, I want you to take seriously this requirement that they must be able to teach and so that they can cultivate and they can correct. And if you aspire to the office of elder in the life of this church, I want you to, to think with me for a moment. If you, if, if you feel like theology okay, is a waste of your time and you don't want to apply your mind to understand what the Bible teaches, then you probably don't need to be serving the church as an elder. One of the applications of this, if you're unwilling to read some books with some footnotes, if you think that theological discussion is dry, dusty, and reserved for the halls of seminaries and academicians, okay, then you probably don't need to be trying to cultivate a church that is rich and sound doctrinally. But if you like to press into the doctrines of truth, like the triunity of God and more fully understand that while it's a mystery to us we affirm it because we believe the Bible teaches it and it is the foundation for our understanding of marriage and for family it's our foundation for the understanding of our longing for true and vibrant and transparent and rich and deep community where we are known and know others if you want to help the church see those things then let's test the desire for eldership in your life if you have no desire to help the church see those things, we need to temper that desire until you do. You must be able to teach so you can cultivate and correct. Now, Paul goes on. I'm going to hit these in much quicker fashion than the, the command to teach. Okay? Or else we'll be here for a really long time. Second thing I want you to see in this text this morning is this, that he must lead well not only in public but in private in private in verse 4 Paul tells Timothy that those who would aspire to the office of elder or overseer or pastor must manage his own household well with all dignity keeping his children submissive and the beautiful thing about these qualifications is that Paul goes on in every instance and these three that we're going to look at at the end is, is to say this here's why here's why he needs to manage his household well Okay? Notice the rationale in verse 5 that he gives. He says the reason for, the fam- for leadership in the family is a must for oversight in the church is this. is for, anytime you see that little three-letter word for, it's often indicating there's a reason for what's just been previously said. And Paul says here's the reason that he must lead well in the family. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Listen, church. If a man is, does not know how to lay aside his agenda for the needs of his family, then how will he know how to lay aside his agenda for the needs of the church? I, I used to, when I was a singles pastor for many years, I used to tell young adults this as they dated. Okay? I used to tell um, particularly the, the young women in the context of discussions on dating. I would say, listen, if, if you look at his life and you don't see any initiative for him to lead in any capacity, in any venue, right? He's not leading out in his vocation. He's not leading out as a part of his biological family. He's not honoring and respecting his mother. Like, that'll tell you a lot about how a man's going to honor and respect you. But listen, if you don't see him leading or taking initiative in any other area of his life, what makes you think that he's going to take initiative and give leadership in your home and be the kind of man that you would want to raise a family with? That was for free, by the way. But the same is true. The same is true here. 
if you don't see that in the life of his family, then how, how would you expect to see that in the life of the church? So if he's not skilled in lovingly disciplining his kids with grace and truth, not exasperating them, how will he lovingly discipline wayward members of the congregation? You can go on. If he's unable to instruct his kids, how will he lovingly instruct the church? If he doesn't demonstrate affection and care and love and concern for his wife and for his children, what leads you to believe he will truly love the church? If he doesn't know how to sacrifice for his family, what believes you, leads you to believe he's going to sacrifice for the church? So Paul says he must lead well, not only whenever the spotlight is on him, but also when no one else is looking. He's within the four walls of his home. Second thing that he says as we continue to move down through these, or actually third qualification, that he must be well thought of in the city. Must be well thought of in the city. In verse 7, Paul says that someone who would step into the office of elder or pastor must be well thought of by outsiders. Well thought of by outsiders. Paul, by, by saying that, Paul's referring to people who are outside the church. People who are in the city. Okay, so Paul says when someone hears that a particular man is an elder or a pastor or an overseer in a local church, right, their first response should not be, really? That guy? <laughs> With the way he conducts business? With the way he speaks to and about people? With the way that he treats his family? With the language that he uses with his neighbors, with the way that he interacts with his kids' teachers at school, really that guy? That should not be their first response. Listen, Paul gives us the reason for that, you know, the purpose. It says in verse 7, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Paul says the purpose for which elders must have a good reputation is that they would not be entrapped in a snare of the devil, thereby bringing disgrace upon themselves and upon Jesus' church. Because listen, I will say this, there's nothing more that Satan wants than to disarm the gospel message in this community by disgracing the leaders of a local church in the eyes of the city. To give them all kinds of objections and all kinds of hang-ups for why Christianity is not valid and the church is full of hypocrites. There's nothing more that Satan would like to do than to give a black eye to the church. And there, listen, in the, in the big C, universal church, there have been a lot of black eyes over the last, over my lifetime. Right? Sex scandals, misappropriations of funds, abuses of power. And Paul says, he must have a good reputation. Not only inside the church, but outside of it as well. Third and finally, he says, he must have some tenure as a believer. Some tenure as a believer. In verse 6, Paul tells Timothy that any man who would step into the office of elder must not be a recent convert. Not a recent convert. Listen, I didn't ask them for permission before I used their daughter in this illustration, but uh, they'll forgive me later. Uh, Brian and, and Angela Rowe gave, uh, well, Angela gave birth. Brian was holding the hand when she gave birth. Um, but... Angela gave birth to a beautiful young girl named Nora, what, 10 months ago, 11 months ago now? Um, and Nora is crawling around, mobile, active, uh, you know, all around the house. Uh, I think a few other families in our church have had little ones recently, and they're just everywhere. But listen, if we were going to say, we need to get from here to Dallas, 
We would not take Nora and put her out on Highway 66 and say, fall in line behind Nora. She's going to crawl her way there and we're going to follow her. One, CPS would probably show up at that point. Um, but second of all, right, she, she has no idea where she's going. She has no clue where she's going. She needs, she needs to be directed, not be the one directing and listen, for those who are new to the faith, who have not been recently been born again, just like an infant who has been recently born, you don't put them at the head of the line and say, lead the way. But they come into the line and they're led and they're nurtured and they're cared for, they're instructed, they're disciplined, they're corrected, they put back on the rails at times because they have a tendency to fall off. Just like a baby is stumbling as it tries to take its first steps and it falls down, you pick it back up and you say, go get it again. Right, that's what you do with young converts. Because listen, how can someone who is, has yet to see just how deep their own depravity runs and yet still rejoice by the Spirit and the Son to the glory of a Holy Father help you see the depths of your depravity and rejoice in the same? They can't. They don't know how deep sin goes in their own hearts. As a new convert. How can someone who thinks they have it all together? Because that's what a lot of new converts believe. I've got all the answers now. And as yet to discover they don't have it all together, help you do anything other than pretend that you do have it all together. Paul says he cannot be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. See, if an elder does not have some tenure as a Christian, they can easily come to believe that they are the groom and not just a groomsman. I've done a lot of weddings in my day. As a singles pastor in particular. But I've had some people like pass out, like some, not, not the bride or the groom, but I've had attendants pass out on the side of the stage. Fortunately, the father saw it coming, saw the knees buckle, and he jumped up and caught her in his arms. Right? I've had some weird things go down in some wedding ceremonies in the past. But listen, one thing I've never seen, I've never been standing at the front of the church or in the gazebo outside, wherever the wedding was held. I've never been standing there with my Bible and have the groom standing next to me and all of his groomsmen lining down next to him and all the bridesmaids over here. I've never seen those doors open in the back and the father of the bride begin to usher her in on his arm. She's all dressed in white with the veil or no veil, but she's just beautiful and radiant and gushing and she begins to come down the aisle and the groom is standing there and his eyes are beginning to well up with tears as he looks upon his beautiful bride I've never in my life seen a groomsman who's standing next to him step out in front of him and say how you doing <laughs> to put all the focus and attention on himself because he knows he's not the groom he stays to the side and he's there to support the groom whom he loves deeply. And listen, there's a tendency, there can be a tendency for new converts who have become puffed up with pride to believe they should be front and center, that all of this is about them. It's about them. And it's not about Jesus. But somebody who has tenure as a believer, listen, they are still prone to that temptation. But hopefully they've got enough life behind them as a follower of Jesus to know that the church, it's not about them. 
It's about Him. So I'm not trying to enamor people with me as an elder. Our elders should not be trying to say, hey, come look at me. Look at how gifted I am. Look at how spiritual I am. Look at how insightful I am. Our elders should be people who are saying, I am just a servant, as Paul says. Who am I? Who's Apollos? Who is Cephas? We are nothing but servants. We plant seeds and we water seeds, but ultimately it is God who gives the what? Growth. It's God who gives the growth. So don't be infatuated with me. Be infatuated with Him. Be captivated with Him and His beauty. His majesty. His glory. Not impressed by me. He says, if not, then what happens is they fall into the condemnation of the devil. You know what? The devil, when he fell, he fell because he thought he deserved first chair. And he would love nothing more than to drag leaders in the church, elders in the church, into the same belief they deserve first chair. Not Jesus. So he must have some tenure as a believer. So how long, listen, if you aspire to that, how long have you been a Christian? When were you born again? When did the lights come on for you? How long have you been hoping in Jesus as the source of all your joy in this life and the life to come? How long have you been yielding to the Holy Spirit to seek to put sin to death in your life? Right, when you think of the office of elder, do you think of it as a place of privilege or a place of service? A place to be seen? Or a place to shine a light on Jesus? A place to be in the spotlight or just to be a small little flashlight shining the light on Jesus Himself? Paul says he's got to have some tenure. And it doesn't happen overnight. It didn't happen overnight. See, I thought, hmm, I thought whenever I was in my early 20s, I'm ready to be a pastor. I cringe now at the thought of myself in my early 20s thinking about myself as God saved me from myself and saved some church from me at that point in my life. I'd only been a believer for a couple of years at that point. But I knew, Lord, I felt the Lord's call of ministry. I had people affirming that and I thought, I'm ready. I can do it better than they're doing it. Hmm. If I could go back and speak to my younger self. But I think all of us probably feel that way at times, don't we? Unless you're young. Then you think, no, I don't have anything to say to myself. <laughs> so what's at stake in all of this? Listen, what's at stake is this. Is the advancement of, this go- of the gospel in this community through this local church that's being cultivated by biblically qualified, healthy leadership. That's what's at stake. So this morning, we'll open up nominations for elders. And as we do, I encourage you, see the nomination of these individuals through these lenses that we've been talking about these last three weeks. There's a plurality of us in this church. There's There's not a solo pastor here. There's multiple pastors here. There's there's qualifications of character for their lives. Got to be able to teach. Got to have some tenure. They they need to be leaders in their home. 
Right, so you pass these nominations through all these lenses. And as you think about nominating someone, there's forms at the kiosk in the back of the room. And uh, they, they're just half sheets of paper. They look like this. And as you nominate someone, if you're a member in this church, you're welcome to nominate someone. And as you nominate someone, here's what I ask you to do. Before you write their name down on this slip of paper and fold it up, and then your name as well, and you put it in that box back there, have a conversation with them first. <laughs> ask them. Because it's incredibly affirming perhaps for some of these folks, to receive that almost invitation. If I were to nominate you, would you be willing to serve our church in the office of elder? Because I see these things in you. And if they're willing, fold up their, that sheet of paper, drop it in that box, and over the course of the next month, we'll be collecting those. Following uh, the, the next four weeks of Sundays here, uh, we'll compile all those names and we'll begin to follow our, our elders currently begin to follow up with them, sit down with them, talk them through um, in even more in depth, the, the responsibilities, the role, ask them to seek out input from their spouses, from friends who know them well. Am I qualified to serve in this capacity? Do you see things that I don't see in my life right now? And as they step perhaps forward to serve our church as elders with the hope that in January we're able to install some spiritually qualified men whom God has called and the church has affirmed to lead, feed, and protect her. So this morning, listen, this morning as we close the service, I'm going to pray. The band's going to come. They're going to lead us in song. Um, and we're going to share the Lord's, set up the Lord's table and share that together. So would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the time to get together today. We thank you for the way that your word does not leave us in the dark about how leadership should be recognized and affirmed in the life of the local church, but you've given us clarity on that issue. And Father, we know what's at stake. It's the church for whom your son died. And even as we celebrate the Lord's table together this morning, as we think of his body that was broken and his blood that was shed, for the people from every tribe and tongue and race and nation, from every ethnicity and social class in our country and in our community, that His life was given for them and in their place. Father, that we would take seriously our participation in the nomination of men who would serve this local church well. So Father, help us as we pray and process through that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.